Imagine you grew up in ancient Jericho. It's a city under the control of a powerful foreign empire. The city itself rests on a plain, surrounded by mountains. Littered amongst these stone-built houses, you see palm trees and fruit trees. They're watered by streams running by them. Your mum and dad are Jewish. There's a rich history of your people here. You remember the stories of your forefathers who conquered this city when they first stepped into the promised land. They said the walls literally crumbled before them by the power of God. Your mum and dad named you pure when you were born. But as you grew up, you began to realize you were anything but pure. Religious leaders told you you needed to be better, try harder. But no, ma no matter how hard you tried, you didn't measure up. You didn't have what it took to be good enough. Friends were hard to come by, and you learned you had to fend for yourself. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world out there. Friends and family had let you down, so you chose to fight for yourself and get ahead. You saw a job for a, a local government position, and you start collecting tax as a tax collector. The pay is great, because whenever you collect tax, you just take a cut for yourself. And if you need a little more, you just take a little more. It's just how it works. The spiritual elites, they, they judge you. Your, commu your old community, they hate you now. They think you're a traitor. But they never did anything for you. And those spiritual leaders, where did they get their money from anyway? They have their own taxes. So what's the difference? They're no better. Besides, who could ever live up to a name like Pure anyway? You don't need them. And when you work for the guys with the big swords and the pointy spears, you don't have to worry about them. You're protected. So you steal, you cheat, you take. Corruption is just part of the job, and you get good at it. The higher-ups, they start to notice. And before you know it, your hard work pays off. You're the chief. You're the boss. You're in charge of this whole city's taxes. You made it to the top. Soon, you're one of the richest men in the city because trade is booming. No one can touch you. Sure, everybody hates you, but it's too late to turn back. You know they're just jealous. You've got everything you ever wanted, the nicest food, the best home, whatever you want, it's yours. Money, power, influence, you've got it. But during the cool of the night, when it's quiet and no one's there, you feel nothing. Everything is empty. You feel alone. Your parents named you pure, but that's a far cry from what you are. You're corrupt. Through and through, and you know it. Everybody knows it. Every penny you earned was off the back of another. And even if you wanted to change, no one could ever trust you again. This is just who you are. There's no shot at redemption. There's no turning back. Religion won't have you. Your family won't speak to you. No one trusts you. There is nowhere to turn. You've made your bed. Now it's time to lie in it. God, if only there was a way out. So this is the story about a man whose name means pure. His name is Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector in a prosperous city called Jericho. In his day, tax collectors were hated. They were traitors of their people. 
because of their collusion. They would, they would collaborate with the Roman Empire and collect money for them, and they were the people who were running the show. Um, they were controlling this state where these people lived, their old home. And their reputation was for extortion. A chief tax collector, he would oversee the other tax collectors, so he'd be the worst of the worst. And he may have been rich, but he was an outcast. We find his story at the start of Luke 19. So if you have a Bible, um, just grab a Bible. I think we have Bibles at the back that we, if you don't have one, raise a hand. We can give, give them out. Um, some people at the back, if, uh, yeah, or if you have a phone, just tap there. So Luke 19. So before we start reading, let's set the scene. So before Jesus ever got to Jericho, it was his custom that he'd send disciples ahead of him to announce his coming. Zacchaeus likely would have heard about a miracle worker, a preacher, a prophet who spoke about the good news. Not about so much sin and judgment, but good news for the rejected, the outcast. Good news for those who turned from their old ways. Good news maybe even for tax collectors. It's possible he could have even heard that one of his disciples used to be a tax collector. And the day came. Ah, I'm forgetting to advance the slides. This is my job. Ah, look at that. Okay, Zacchaeus, Luke 19. Here we are. Jesus had arrived. On his way into Jericho, he'd already healed a blind man, Bartimaeus. This Jesus was the real deal. He just healed a blind man. I mean, can you even imagine that? It's like a blind man can see. It, it wasn't just that he was a preacher. There was actual miracles following him around. So this is where we're going to start reading. And just a quick note, a lot of the notes that I'm going to give, I've, I've shamelessly stolen from a guy called Michael Ramsden, who's a Christian apologist. He sometimes lectured, lectures at Oxford University. I, I think he's brilliant, and um, so I just, I'm borrowing some of his notes. So, Jesus, Luke 19, verse 1. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man there by the name of Zacchaeus, he was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was because he was short and he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. So Jesus was leaving town and how do we know this? It's because it says he was passing through and that literally in the original language meant that he was passing all the way through and as we've already covered he just healed Bartimaeus on his way to Jericho so if he had wanted to be popular he would have gone into the center set up a platform and then preached to the whole city but he didn't he healed Bartimaeus then keeps moving on through he had one more appointment Now, Zacchaeus, all he wants to do is catch a glimpse of Jesus. He's not trying to meet him. He doesn't really want to talk to him either. He's just trying to see him. And because he's short, he has to do something creative. But he's intrigued to know who Jesus Christ is. Who are you, Jesus? It's the single most important question 
then and now. Who are you, Jesus? But Zacchaeus has some serious problems. Firstly, he's not popular. Secondly, he's wealthy. That's a big, that's a big no-no. And thirdly, he's really short. So that rules out being in the crowd. But Zacchaeus is desperate to see him, so he decides to do something quite stupid. He runs ahead and climbs a tree. So he knows that no one's going to be on that tree, and so sycamore fig tree, the tree he climbed up, they're, they're probably a lot of fun for small boys. They have low-lying branches, and you can climb up, and their fruit, it's like super glue when it dries, it's, it's great. Um, so he would have he seen this tree and, and climbed up it, and it kind of reminds me of when I was a boy, because we had this uh, giant rhododendron tree, and I didn't know when I looked it up, I'm, is it, was it a rhododendron, Dad? Okay. Big tree, low-lying uh, uh, branches, you can easily climb up them, just hours of endless fun for me and my brother climbing this tree. So sycamore fig trees are quite similar. They've got those low-lying branches, and so you can climb up them pretty fast and easily. And they have a lot of leaves, so once you're in, you're hidden, no one can see you. So also because of the local Jewish bylaws in his day, uh, there wouldn't, they wouldn't have been too near to the main path. They would have actually been um, off the main path. Um, and so there's no risk of him being caught in the crowd. So Zacchaeus runs ahead of the crowd and climbs the tree. So there are two things to know about this culture. Running is a shameful thing for a man to do. Boys, it's fine. But once you reach the age of 12... It's disgraceful for a man to run, because when you run, you show your legs, and that's disgraceful. So boys over the age of 12 just didn't do that. Secondly, it, you do not climb trees. Set is for the same reason. If you climb a tree, you're going to have to show your legs. You, in those days, he would have worn a long robe, and to climb a tree, you'd have to bring up your robe and tie it together, and then climb the tree, and it, probably the women can relate to this more than the men, but you'd, you'd know that you know, even climbing into like a four by four, it's, it's very difficult unless you do something with your, your long skirt. So no detail in this story is a waste. So here comes the big entourage. Everyone is vying for Jesus' attention. He's the celebrity of the moment. He's just healed a blind man. The crowd are probably demanding, asking, Jesus, please come and stay at my house. Please come stay at my house, because he's in town. But Jesus does something a little odd. He leaves the city, and he steps off the main road. And he goes towards this big sycamore fig tree in the middle of nowhere. And he stops in front of the tree, and he looks up. You can imagine the crowd slowly tracing his eye line and looking up with him. Ah, oh, there's a man in that tree. And he says, Zacchaeus, come out of there. So the crowd probably loved this, because... Here it is, an important visitor, a spectacular healing, and now the most hated man in the city has been caught like a little boy up a tree. 
it doesn't get much better than this, not in one day. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up to him and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. What did he just say? You can imagine the crowd's disbelief. This man is a traitor. The one person he singles out to spend time with that day is the most unpopular man in the city. You could imagine crowd approving ratings just plummet to the floor. This is the last thing that any good politician would do. Verse six, so he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. The people of Jericho would have hated Jesus for this. They murmured and complained. Everyone in town would have known who Zacchaeus was because he's the guy that took their money. Just think about it for a second. Imagine, imagine you're one of the crowd. Imagine you've been stolen from. That say you work at a, say, here's a different example. Say you work at a company and your coworker cheats you out of something and then he takes the credit and they get away with it and then they get a promotion. How do you feel about that person? Not great. Probably that they're the worst person on the planet. And now imagine that, multiply that feeling by the population of a city. And we're only part of the way to understanding the hatred for Zacchaeus. So endorsing Zacchaeus would be like saying, I endorse Donald Trump. Or I really like to go for dinner with Nigel Farage. These people are divisive. These people, you, you show affection for these people, people will hate you. We need to understand this pushes everyone's buttons. Remember, Jesus wasn't crucified for being nice. He was crucified by popular demand. Verse eight. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. The people around must have been thinking, what do you mean, if? <laughs> All your money is my money. So also, let's do some maths here. If you give away half your worth and you promise to pay back four times what you owe and all your money you've gained by cheating, how much money do you have left? Well, let's just say you're very, very deep in the hole. Uh, so Jesus looks past all of this very faulty math and speaks straight into his heart. Instead of correcting him on maybe his calculation errors and his ability to deliver on that promise, instead he says to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. This was the one that Jesus just left, the 99 for. He calls him a son of Abraham. What is Abraham the father of? If you've, uh, if you've read your New Testament, there's, it's, it says that he's the father of faith. 
Jesus says to him, you're one of the faith. You're a son who looks like your father. He's not seeing a man who thinks he's good enough. He clearly knows he isn't. But a man who wanted to know Jesus. Jesus Christ calls him by name, invites him to eat together, and sacrifices every single bit of goodwill and popularity in that town for the sake of this hated man. It's amazing. So today we're talking about generosity. But before we get any further, I just want to check if anyone's really kind of been listening to the series, if they've gotten it yet. So can anyone give me some cash right now? I'm, I'm looking for around 50 to 100 pounds. Yeah, Dan, you got some money for me? Yeah, go for it. Thanks. Ooh, cash. That's, that's quite a lot. Yeah, let's count that. That's uh, 10, 20, 40, 60, 80 pounds. Thanks, Dan. Cool. So generosity, specifically spring. Um, so two weeks ago, Laura Taylor spoke on autumn. And times are good in autumn. There's a harvest. It's a time to be thankful. Learn how to steward in times of abundance. Last week, Nigel spoke on winter. It's the opposite of harvest. There's lack. We must resist the danger of hoarding, of selfishness and self-protection when there's less. I'm just going to take this gift and put it in my pocket. Spring. So, what is spring? So I have a friend from... Um, ministry school, his name's Matt, and he wrote a song that we occasionally sing here, which is kind of fun, and it's called This Is What You Do, and the lyrics to one of the verses go, it's always like springtime with you, you're making all things new, your light is breaking through the dark, and then in the chorus it says, this is what you do, this is what you do, you make me come alive, that's spring, it's a time when you realize things can change, it's a time when hope becomes possible. In Song of Solomon, this was actually read at the wedding, the royal wedding, it says, uh, see, the winter is past, that's the recent royal wedding, not the one before, um, and the rains are over and gone, the flowers are springing up, the season of singing birds has come. Winter is ending and there's signs of new life. It's a time when you can recognize that Winter is passing. The cold, hard times have ended. And you can see the signs of new life breaking forth. Flowers are blossoming. It feels like hope. Hope that warmer days are coming. Hope that things can change. Hope because the worst of things are over and things will get better from here. The evidence of spring is hope. And for Zacchaeus, he had no idea that things were about to change for him. When he got called out on that tree, all he had was winter, rejection, worthlessness, being an outcast. When Jesus said he must eat at his, you can only imagine what was going through his head. Jesus and him would have walked back to his home together. And he probably was just racing through his head. What on earth is happening right now? I can't believe this is happening. 
he, he wouldn't have known what to do with such an honor because never in his, since he he become a tax collector, would he have received such honor and affection from someone who was Jewish, one of his own. But there he was, honored by this important visitor in front of the whole city. His winter oh, as a corrupt tax man was finally coming to an end. Hope had come. And he could only think of one response. I want to tell you a little bit about uh, the start of this year for me. And God kind of gave me a cool word. Um, it really spoke to me. But to set the context, I, I think tail end of 2017, I wasn't, things didn't feel great. Um, I, in my life, I kind of felt a bit stuck and not really excited about life, kind of going through things. And some days I felt unmotivated and that would make me want to procrastinate. And procrastination doesn't basically means you're putting off the things you should be doing, which only compounds the feeling of unmotivation and just not feeling great that you're not getting anything done. And so things, things weren't, didn't seem to be going anywhere. I felt like things in I've always wanted in my life were never going to change. And try as I might, it just didn't feel like I had the capacity to change. Things weren't moving in my life and in any particular direction. My expectations just weren't... My life wasn't living up to my expectations. And so January 1st, I'm driving, it's just gone midnight, I'm driving back to my parents. There is a, f a full moon in the sky. And if you remember around January, there, were, there was, a su it was the super moon. And it was huge. So it was pretty close on January 1st. It was even bigger on the, the end of January. And I looked up at it, and I didn't know anything about it. And I just saw the moon, and it startled me how massive it was in the sky. It was huge. And it's... I was just startled by it. I, I remember thinking to myself, this feeling just entered my heart as an emotion when I saw the moon, and I was like, I feel like this year is gonna be different. And I was just thinking about it, and just like the moon to me is always this representation of hope. It's a, a shining light in a very dark place, and it's, it's a symbol of Jesus to me, because it's a, also a reflection of the glory of the sun, the, the glory of the father is reflected in the sun. So I actually felt like this feeling of it's actually possible. Things are going to change. I remember thinking to myself, this year is going to look different. Like I could actually believe that things were possible. Things could change. I wasn't stuck. And since then, some pieces of my life have really shifted my finances, my, my job, my lifestyle, my kind of my ability to actually get out of the bed and do some exercise, um, friendships, and yes, even, even some of my generosity has shifted and shifted in the right direction. And I can't pretend that I'm better than anyone at this, even though I've been asked to speak on this. I may have the microphone, but this is an area I'm really trying to grow in. I'm not there but I'm trying to grow in this area of generosity. But I also feel like I should tell you that God gave me hope and it was real and he's gonna do what he promised. So funnily enough, even before I was asked to do this message or knew it was a topic that the church was going to do, I read a book on generosity 
and I started to give more money to the church. Not just a 10%, but a bit more. And I'm trying to give more money to good causes as well, because I want my money to have a purpose. And I also believe in what we're building here. Not just a, a building, but what we're doing as a church. So Zacchaeus, he gave radically. He, that, I think that's really cool, actually. And I wonder if we would even know his name if 2,000 years ago he hadn't given so radically generously, uh, generously not just a little more. So there's a challenge for all of us. Uh, but it was a big deal because Jesus had an identity of hope for him. He called him by name. Did you notice that Jesus called him by name without any introduction? Jesus already knows this man's name. He says, Zacchaeus, come down. There's no sign anybody told Jesus his name or he knew anything about Zacchaeus beforehand. But this is the same Jesus that saw another man, Nathaniel, under a different fig tree and called him by name without ever having met him. It seems that Jesus just knows us. He's the one who sees through the mask and looks at our hearts. I actually remember a time when um, someone I'd just met, I was just being introduced to them, and two seconds into the conversation, I had a thought pop in my head and I just said it. I said, oh, you like cats. And she stopped dead in her tracks and she said, how do you know that? What do you, what do you mean I like cats? I'm obsessed with cats. And funnily enough, she questioned her friend about it later. And she was a little confused and somewhat surprised that this complete stranger knew this odd detail about her. And her friend told her, God knows what matters to you. And I'd like to suggest to you, God does know what matters to us. He does. He's just, he's just a good father like that. He knows your name and he invites you. But there is a distinct possibility that we could miss him calling us. So many people in Jesus' day missed him. Got the son of God walking through town and you can miss him. So right before Jesus comes to Jericho, Luke gives us a story of the rich young ruler in Luke 18. He's, Luke's using him as a contrast character. So they put these two stories right next to each other to contrast their responses. So he too was a Jew. He too was a person in authority. He too was very wealthy. He too stood face to face with Jesus and had an invitation from him. But he walked away. So what's the difference between him and Zacchaeus? Why did one accept and the other one walk away? What's the difference in attitude between Zacchaeus and the rich young ruler? Why don't you just turn to your neighbor now and just discuss what you think? Or just take a couple of minutes to do that. So, you may have some um, different answers from me, but here are the two things that I saw that mark Zacchaeus' response. Humility and thankfulness. Humility because he had already let go of his dignity and significance in order to respond to Jesus. 
Remember, he ran and climbed. The desperation to see Jesus far outweighed his dignity and self-importance. So why, why wasn't it that hard for Zacchaeus? And when it was so hard for the rich young ruler, well, he firstly recognized what he had, the money, the riches, the power, and the influence. It didn't make him happy. There was already a lot of pain in his life. He was in a state, he was a state-sanctioned thief. Nobody trusted him, everybody hated him. And with the rich young ruler, he would have been loved and accepted, perhaps even comfortable. He couldn't have let go of what he had because it made him secure. But Zacchaeus knew he wasn't secure. Compared to what was on offer, it was nothing for him to respond to Jesus. And sadly, sometimes in our lives, we may need a winter where we experience pain and hardship that humbles us. Sometimes that's the only lesson that will bring humility to our hearts and bring us out of pride. That's the winter season. I honestly pray that we don't need that type of lesson. I don't believe God ever wants that season for us, but he'll use it to prune our hearts. Humility can then recognize that the source of everything we have is from God. It's all from him. And when we lose sight of, what, of that, we lose sight of him. And pride can enter in. In fact, so when I got given that 80 pounds earlier, which was very generously given by Dan, I'd just given him this money beforehand and just said, hand it to me when I ask for it. It's, it wasn't his money to begin with, so it really wasn't that hard to give away. He just knew he was holding on to it. He knew he was stewarding it for a time, and that when the person who owned it asked for it, it would come back. It all belongs to him, and we're simply stewards of what he's entrusted to us. So humility can recognize what we have is nothing in comparison to him as well. And as a byproduct, Zacchaeus, in his humility, his response was thankfulness. Thankfulness because he welcomed him gladly with excitement and joy. In, in verse 6, it says, Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus into his house in great excitement and joy. That's rejoicing. That's thankfulness. So what could stop us from responding to Jesus? Humility and thankfulness will get us there, but what could stop us? Well, good, ask, oh, good old, um, hang on, let's get it up. Shame, greed, and pride. Yay! <laughs> so I know what you're thinking. Ah, why didn't I come to the evening service instead? <laughs> Maybe you'd probably prefer if I did a verse-by-verse -verse explanation of Leviticus. But we're going to go through this quickly. So these are three big blocks to experiencing generosity. Shame. Shame says, I won't receive because I don't deserve it. Shame kills everything. It stops us from receiving because we don't believe, we, we just believe we're terrible who we are and we don't deserve it. We deserve punishment or nothing at all. And so our expectation blocks us from what God is trying to give us. 
We're too caught up in shame to make ourselves available to receive. And the sad fact is, shame doesn't want redemption, it wants punishment. If we try to give from shame, it's usually, well, it's definitely not from a place of thankfulness. It will cause us to do, act out of what we think we ought to do, or what we should do, perhaps we'll respond because we're shamed into giving or manipulated. And in our mind, it often acts as this appeasement to an angry God instead of a gift to a loving God. And so God, by the way, if this is news to you, he's not angry with you. He's actually really in love with you. And that may be, that may, may be news for some of us. Greed. Greed says, I won't give away what makes me feel significant. Perhaps money or status gives us significance. This could have been the rich young ruler's problem. He couldn't give up his stuff because it was where his significance was. So he walked away sad. We won't be generous when it's about our status. Sadly, status doesn't bring us significance as nearly as well as love does. And guess what? God really wants you to experience his love because he really does love you. Now, pride. Pride says, I'm better than you. It gives you a feeling of self-worth, knowing that you're better than other people. It's the opposite of humility. It says, I depend on no one. I earned my way. It's the worst and the scariest of the lot because God actually opposes the proud. That was why Jesus could hardly ever reach the religious leaders. They all thought they were better than him. Good news is God wants to undo all of your shame and tell you who you really are. And if any of that struck a chord with any of you, any of us, well, don't worry. God will only reveal something to heal it. So here's what the attitude of a transformed heart will say. What is giving to someone who has been given so much? It's humility and thankfulness in response to receiving the love of Jesus. This is the attitude of David when he wrote in the Psalms, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? And whether we're materially rich or materially poor, we're receivers, not only of his mercy and salvation, but of his calling on our lives, his presence, his guiding wisdom, his love, his blessing. And yes, his blessing does include resources like money, but just not exclusively. It's so much bigger than that. It's purpose, it's promise, it's presence. It's the overflow of love, of joy and creativity, it's every single good and perfect gift. I mean, he made coffee. Come on. <laughs> That's how we know he's good. Coffee, right? So, I, I just, I've just experienced so much of receiving from God in my life, and it doesn't feel like I could ever tip the scales back. I, I want to spend a lot of time just sharing story after story after story, but I can't because there's not enough time. But... I'll just say, okay, this laptop here, I didn't pay for this. Apple gave it to me. 
it's, not, it's my second free laptop from Apple. I didn't buy, I bought one laptop one time and I've had three laptops from it. And they all came at points in my life when I couldn't have afforded it. And Apple, I was out of warranty both times and they could have just said, nah, you just got to buy a new one. They decided to give me new laptops and it, it made all the difference for my work and my learning and everything. So God just loves providing. I remember a time when I couldn't make ends meet and I was in ministry school at the time. I was just about to graduate. I'd spent too much money, 100% my fault. I shouldn't have spent so much money on eating out and having fun with friends. So I realized I probably just needed to stay home for a couple of weeks and just do nothing and not spend any money, not, not spend any fuel, don't, don't do anything fun. Even though it's graduation, I'd love to be spending time with some of my friends and celebrate the fact that the school has finished. Shouldn't do that. Something about that, though, didn't feel right. And so I asked my family to pray because I felt like that wasn't the season of life I was in. And strangely enough, three days later after my family prayed, a friend who I hadn't spoken to in five years, five years, sent me a message and said, hey, I saw that you're graduating. I'd love to send you a gift. And I'm like, oh, tell me more. I, I honestly, actually, really what I was feeling was, this is so sweet of God. I, I think this guy's probably going to send me 20, I was living in the States, so $20. That, that's such a sign of God's kindness. He ended up sending me two gifts that totaled $600. It made such a difference to that, that month and the next month and just like it was coffees with friends, meal out after graduation. It was a lot of fuel in my car. It was, it was so many things that just made, uh, transformed that experience from being one where I had to hide in my home to one where I could actually be in the moment with people I loved. So um, there's actually one more story I'll share. Um, so back in ministry school, I really wanted to give to some other students' outreaches, and so I looked at my budget and I reallocated some funds and split about $65 between a few classmates, just sent out small gifts. I couldn't do much more than that. Just, it's just what I could, could give. But I was trying to make it, like, curb some other areas of my budget so I could give more to other people. And the next day, I woke up, and I saw a text from my dad, and blurry-eyed, I read how a friend from England had just donated $650. And that was tenfold multiplication overnight. So I was like, good grief, God is generous. That was just amazing to me. I've, I've, I've never experienced such kind of fast, here's what I give to God and here's what came back so quickly. Um, so I just want to say, maybe that's not been your experience. And if that hasn't been your experience of God, I would like to suggest that you ask him for more. Because he won't ignore a heart that hungers to meet him. It's not, it's not about the money that you're asking for an experience. It's about God being present in your life and for, for meeting your needs, being part of the team, being part of the flow of life. That He wants to be involved in that. He wants, he wants to be part of that. He, he actually wants to answer some of your wants and desires. And I, I know I've had to do this at many points in my life when I've got disconnected from God. And I've, I've had to get real with him and honest. I, don't, I didn't need to fake it. You don't need to either. 
there's no need to pretend about putting on a face of spirituality. You just get honest and humble with him. You get very real, you tell God where you're at, and you ask for him to come and reshape your life and heart. Because he wants to reshape your heart and life with his generosity. So, this is, this is where we're going to come in to finish. We believe in a generous God, so we want to be like him and act like him. That's been the common theme of every message of generosity. We're transformed by his generosity. We want to be like him. We're not trying to impress people. We're not trying to impress God. We're just trying to be like him. This was Zacchaeus' response. It's the best testing ground of our faith, trying to deal with our finances. But if we can be humble and thankful, we'll pass this test. So, generosity in spring. It's humility and thankfulness in response to the love of Jesus. Through the bleak and bitter winter, we're humbled and gain a perspective on what truly matters. At the invitation of Jesus, we receive him to our hearts. And in, as new life springs forth and hope arises, we respond with thankful giving. We're humble to know what truly matters. We receive the love of Jesus and we respond with thankfulness and giving. Jesus came to Zacchaeus and asked to eat with him. He called him and asked to eat with him. Maybe you think, I don't know if God's doing that for me. Well, here's Revelation 3.20. He says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. He called Zacchaeus and he's calling you. He's calling me. He wants to break bread together. And Jesus hasn't changed. So with humility and thankfulness, let's respond to the love of Jesus. Hey, why don't we stand together and thank you, Will, for sharing with us. What a fantastic message. We just have a couple of minutes and we want to just give an opportunity to respond to what God is saying.